Welcome everyone to the Modern Day Overthinker Podcast. My name is Colin and I'm your host. This week's episode is with Adam Wiffles. Adam is someone I've gotten over the last four years as we attend similar support groups for substance use disorder and we are both in recovery and love talking about mental health and sorry I sound a little stuffed up right now I apologize for that but don't let that be a distraction to listening to this episode because me and Adam talked about a lot we talked about his upbringing his background with complex post-traumatic stress disorder the last time we talked a couple years ago Adam was misdiagnosed and has a new diagnosis, which is CPTSD, which we got into talking about the details around that, why he abused drugs, recovery being something you have to want, what led him to a life of sobriety and recovery, and a whole lot more. Adam has a very special story and a story that I think everyone can get something out of because he did not hold back what he shared and I appreciate that a lot. I always appreciate people being open and honest and fully open and honest like he was. So without further ado, this is episode number 57 with Adam Wiffles. Welcome everyone to the Modern Day Overthinker Podcast. My name is Colin and I'm your host. Thank you for tuning in today. Today I have Adam Wiffles here in the studio and we are going to talk about a few different things, but one, before I get started, I want to thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. And we've talked before, but a lot's changed since then. So I first wanted to kind of get into your background. Like the last time we talked you were talking about uh, multiple personality disorder, and you've since... Borderline borderline personality personality disorder. Sorry, I mix up the two. Um, That's that's pretty common. Yeah, and either way, that's not the case. Yeah, so, um, I mean, when I was involved in the mental health system before, um, I'd just gotten off of drugs. Um, I used drugs for 10 years, drank alcohol for 10 years, um, and just like really didn't have any way to like regulate my emotions other than using substances and uh, like process addiction behaviors. So I really, um, when I got assessed, um, when I got off of drugs, uh, my symptoms really looked like uh, borderline personality disorder. There's like six or seven um, like key, like hallmark features of borderline personality disorder. I think if you meet like three of them, you can get a diagnosis. Um, and I met all of them. Um, but 
I didn't end up doing any of the treatments that were suggested for the treatment of borderline personality disorder. I did some other things. Um, and I just, I had continued to get better in terms of like that diagnostic criteria. Like I wasn't engaging in a you lot of checking that. checking all the boxes. Yeah, no, not even close. Um, that stuff actually cleared up relatively quickly in terms of, you know, there's a few on there like, um, like self-harm, uh, mania, things like that. That mm-hmm. stuff went away. And it turns out that um, drugs make you erratic and uh, things change pretty quickly when you're using drugs and alcohol. And early recovery from drug addiction also is really erratic and really high highs, low lows. Um, but yeah, no, I don't. I don't think that I meet the diagnostic criteria for borderline personality disorder, and my therapist doesn't either. Um, the stuff that we talk about is uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about that because I've obviously a lot of people know about post-traumatic stress disorder, but yeah, the complex part. What does that entail? So when we think, we'll we'll talk a little bit about regular post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Um, Seems to be like kind of the hot topic in psychology right now. Mm -hmm. So we all all have pretty firm understanding like what trauma is and um, really the definition of trauma that I was given is when um, you go through an event that you do not have the resources to process correctly or in a healthy way. and complex post-traumatic stress disorder is really when you have multiple occurrences of that happening over a period of time. Um, so a lot of people will have, you know, they get sexually assaulted, they get beaten or abused, some some kind of really over-the-top um, event, life-changing event happens. And their central nervous system has an adaptation um, mm-hmm. where it, it's just like on high alert all the time. It's telling them their body's not safe, they can't relax, um, they, they continuously relive the event over and over again. Um, with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, it's really, it doesn't even necessarily have to be like those big events. But it's multiple. Yeah, so um, I, I grew up with really erratic, um, a really erratic environment, um, like my mom has a pretty serious drug addiction, a lot of mental health problems. Um, She wasn't really around when I was a child, but the times that she was around um, weren't very nurturing, Mm -hmm. uh, really confusing emotionally. Uh, My parents got divorced, uh, I think, when I was five. I don't really have memories before the divorce, but I have memories afterwards that were really... um, it's really, really confusing, um, and a lot of a lot of people that end up um, getting diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, they have, for the most part, just like adverse childhood experiences. Um, there's like an ACEs test that you can do, and it will tell you. Um, it tells you it tells you a lot. They it's mostly used for research. A lot of people think that it's like some kind of like diagnostic test, but. Um, I took that test when I went to treatment and I've taken it recently just because like, I know that your mind changes the longer that you're off drugs. And I still had a pretty high ACEs score, like for those experiences in my childhood, like growing up around somebody with drug addiction, um, like conflict, just generally feeling unsafe. And that's really, that's really how it was for me is I didn't really feel like I got abused. Nobody ever hit me when I was a kid. 
but it was just these continuous, um, just feeling unsafe, not feeling uh, nurtured, being neglected. Yeah. Um, not really having a secure person to form an attachment to. A lot um, of unknowns. Yeah. It's, I just like never really knew, um, what to expect in terms of the people that were supposed to. Provide on edge. Me. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I grew up with, um, an, a sister that has a substance use disorder. Um, my, my dad really didn't get any information on mental health when he was growing up, which I mean, he, nobody really talked about that stuff in like the seventies no. and eighties, you know? Not really. Um, so he was just really confused and know what to do. He had to work a lot. He worked two jobs, uh, really worked his ass off. I learned a lot from Mike. So it was tough to, for him to time was not on his side there. No. And he really didn't understand what was going on either. Yeah. Um, I don't think he would have ever guessed that when he married my mother, that she was going to end up being the way that she was. It's like Andy Griffith and Amy Winehouse had a baby. It's just bizarre combination. That so she obviously wasn't using the way she was using or maybe hiding it. Yeah. I, I don't really have all the details. Really know. Yeah. You know, so, you know how it is. And like yeah. in mesh family systems, like we have like a, a, a legend of what's too. going on and yeah. then like reality. And I don't think yeah. anybody wants to admit reality. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he had, he had a lot of problems with anger and, uh, there was de- definitely like this feeling that we were supposed to like fit in. We grew up in a pretty conservative Catholic community, um, a lot of wealth in the town that I grew up in, and we were not by any means wealthy. We we had what we needed, and a lot of the times I got what I wanted, but it, a lot of it was based around like really poor, unsafe financial choices. Um, so it was weird. It was like we lived a double life, and anything that could get in the way of upholding that image was unacceptable. Um, and really there, a lot of, a lot of the conflict started to get really elevated when my sister started using drugs. Um, she's older than you. Yeah. She's four years older than me. Um, like her drug addiction just got unmanageable so quickly. There was just constant conflict in the house, yelling, screaming, uh, doors being slammed. And you were how old at this time? That, see, that one's tough for me. So my, I think my sister was probably like 14 or 15, so I would have been like 11. Okay, so not even teens yet. Yeah, so I came from this place of like not really getting emo- emotionally nurtured because of the necessity to make enough money to raise two kids. Yeah. Um, and then like not having that like mom in my life. Um, and then, you know, I, I came from this like footing, this like shaky footing, and then went into this just absolute nightmare of like what is actually going to happen tonight in the house like is uh everybody going to fight till four in the morning and scream is she going to come home drunk or high on methamphetamines what's going to happen yeah yeah so it you know i just i checked out like i got really really depressed i already felt not right for a long time Mm -hmm. you know like i i've talked to my grandmother about what i was like when i was a little kid and she said even before all the all that stuff started to happen like i was this really anxious scared like meek person and uh it i mean it just exploded from there i really lost the will to live i lost um the capacity to feel and experience joy i lost the ability to take risks and have new experiences um then around you know three four years later you know i had my 14th birthday party and i decided i'm going to try drugs and uh i mean that just it radically changed everything in my life um i used to be really confused as to why people did drugs because like i said you know i had that abandonment trauma my mother left because of drugs 
And then, yeah. then your sister, you're like, oh, I don't want to be like that. Yeah, and one of the only people I felt, like, really close to, he lived next door. Um, he, um, just, like, absolutely terrible, terrible upbringing. His dad was um heroin addict. He was never in the picture. Um, he had a really physically abusive stepdad. Um, and then um, as I got older, I didn't know this then, but as I got older, I learned that he was being molested too by somebody in the family um he started doing drugs when we were nine jeez like he was doing prescription pain pills and stuff he was stealing them from a family member so he got he got taken away and it's just like this reinforcing message of abandonment like when people do drugs you end up alone um so i I always think it's really interesting looking back that i ended up uh, having a 10 year long drug addiction because of those, those circumstances but really what it came down to is i just didn't have uh, the capacity to like feel safe emotionally or really make good decisions or feel supported by anybody. So it was more, it was more like I'm going to either check out completely and commit suicide, or I'm going to figure out what all this is about. Mm-hmm. And, um, I figured out what it was all about. <laughs> Just took a little while. Well, yeah, it, t- it took a little bit. Yeah. But... I mean, I don't know. I, I I think like a lot of people would expect like fourteen year olds to experiment with drugs. Uh, for or me, at least drinking. Which yeah. yeah. For me, it just kicked off right away. Like um, just went right into it. Yeah. So I I gave it a shot, and I you know I tried marijuana and alcohol on my fourteenth birthday, and every, it all made sense why people left. I mean, it just it it completely alleviated all the the heaviness and that sinking feeling in my Escape. chest and all the fear. Like I felt for the first time in my life, I could like come out and play and be comfortable in my own skin. So naturally, like, um, cause remember we're, we're on this like turning point of either I'm going to die or I'm going to try this. Um, it worked. So I just went all the way with it. Yeah. You know, I was, I felt like I was really academic in my drug use. I'd spend hours online reading about different drugs and, uh, I thought it was like Pokemon dude. I was going to catch them all. Yeah, I mean, I really was, um, you know, over the course of my 10-year drug addiction, there's very few drugs I did not try. Um, very few methods of taking them that I didn't try. Um, so within the first, like, six months of my drug use, like, I was taking prescription pills, I was doing cocaine. Um, really, it really just evolved super quickly and stayed that way for a really long time. And then I have, like, all this mental health stuff that's untreated. So I was just, I was just this tornado mm-hmm. in people's lives. Um yeah. So what got you to the point where you're like, uh, I can't do this anymore. I'm finally going to say it's time to stop. I need to figure this out. Was there a certain event? It was a series of events. Like with everybody, everybody has a different story when it comes to this. So, yeah. So, um, I really, the, the experience that I think that really where things turned, there's two of them, right? Um, and I don't think the first one really affected me until the second one. Um, so I, I, I was in a, a committed relationship. I mean, I guess they were committed. I don't know if I was or had the capacity to be from the time I was 13 until I was 21. And, um, you know, things were pretty okay for a while. And then, you know, when we were 18, we moved, we moved out of the town I grew up in and uh, started living together. And at that point, there wasn't really anything to stop me from doing whatever I wanted. There wasn't like a parental figure watching what I was doing. 
Did your did your partner know what you were doing? Everything? Yeah. So I got I got really clear, and I actually got some freedom from a lot of stuff when that happened. Um, I was able to quit doing uh, street drugs. Um, I quit smoking cigarettes, and really, we just started to um, drink alcohol together on like a semi regular basis. But it's just like just any time that I have any of these experiences, like I can. I would always like switch from one substance to another and be like, well, that's really screwing up my life. So I'm going to do this. So like the substitution, yeah, the drinking was manageable until it wasn't. And then it was like blackout drinking, taking uh, drugs with alcohol, Um, just insanity, man. And like, I just know there was times where like um, we were violent with each other. Um, I was really emotionally abusive, Um, but I, I just like couldn't really understand any of that i didn't have the capacity to understand that like my behavior was the problem um because i just didn't know any other way to act like i had all this fear that the person was going to leave but i didn't have any interpersonal skills or know how to be a healthy person in a relationship and there's this experience this this is what i want to get to is there's this experience where she told me if if this doesn't stop i'm leaving like you need to stop drinking And, um, I think I went like a week where I was like, I'll do anything to make this work. I really Mm. want this relationship to work. I went like a week and it just like, didn't even occur to me that there was anything wrong with it. I started drinking the next Friday and, um, it just went downhill from there. She left, um, rightfully so if I, if I was her, I would have left years ago. Yeah. Um, and then I had to move back in with my dad or at least I got the opportunity to because I didn't have any money. Um, and I was living with him. I was living in his basement, and I was working at, like, McDonald's in a gas station, and I started doing IV drugs. I started doing heroin. Um, I never had access to that until that point. I think this was in, like, 2015. And uh, me and one of my really close friends, his name was Brock Melton, um, we, were, we were doing IV drugs together. And one day, um, I got off work, I drove to Atkinson, hung out with a friend, I was drinking some bottom shelf whiskey and trying to get up enough money to go score. Um, I'm over at this guy's house and I get a phone call from my sister and, uh, they found Brock dead. He had, uh, he had done, he had done some amount of heroin. There was fentanyl in it. Um, and by the time they got to him in Narcan, I mean, he was gone. He was dead. Um, and you would think that would be like enough, like mm-hmm. like all this stuff, like recreating that abandonment from my childhood and then going in and having like the only person that I'm really close to die would have been enough to like really be like, hey, man, I need to stop. And the, the problem with addiction is, is that it's not rational. No. Um, so that experience really for me was just like, I'm going to go do more drugs. Yeah. That's the only way you knew how to cope with it. Yeah. At so. time. Yeah. So what happened is, is we went, me and the neighbor boy that I talked about earlier, we were really close to, to Brock. Mm-hmm. And uh, the my friend that I grew up next door to had been to treatment like six times at this point. Jeez. And um, I, I guess it's a good time to touch on the fact that like nobody gets clean unless they actually want to get clean. Like, oh, if, yeah. I mean, you and I were talking about this earlier. Like mm-hmm. there's no amount of like yelling or saving or encouraging or anything you can do to get somebody to get clean off of drugs if they don't want to get clean off of drugs. Yeah. Um, Cause what happened for me is we went and bought drugs from the guy who sold him drugs that killed him. 
Wow. Like the very like next week, like after we went to the funeral and I couldn't like look his parents in the eyes without being high on drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I go and I buy some drugs with this guy, the guy who started using when he was nine, using hard drugs, like hard drugs were his first experience of drugs. And I, I've always looked at this guy and been like, this guy is a real piece of work, super mm-hmm. bad drug addict. Like, at least I'm not him. Yeah. Yeah. Like as long as I can do better than him, um, I don't have a problem, you know, mm-hmm. like he's a scumbag. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. that's how I looked at this person that I was close to as yeah. I judged myself and compared myself to them. Um, and I go, we get drugs, uh, we go shoot up drugs and he's decided he wants to go to treatment. That's the first time he actually wants he to go of his own volition. Yeah. So we, we do these bags and, um, I do my shot and he does his and, um, I didn't even really get high. Um, it was enough to get out of withdrawal from my addiction and like chemical dependency on heroin. And he does the shot and he's like, like, we're wondering if we have to Narcan him, you know? And, uh, my sister came by because she was really close to him too and knew that he wanted to go to treatment. And I mean, it was a really big blow. We were all really close to Brock. Um, so my sister comes by and sees him like that and is like, obviously concerned, you Mm -hmm. know, like he's high as a guy, he's like slightly in and out of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time when she was dealing with him, I'm downstairs and we still have more dope and I'm trying to figure out how to make it. So I actually get to get high and I wanted to, this is how uninformed I was. I wanted to send him off to rehab with some drugs just so he could be comfortable there. <laughs> um, and this is, this is, uh, I always, I always love telling this story. So I'm I'm downstairs. My dad had a split-level house we were living in at this point in time. My bedroom's downstairs, and there's this bathroom. And it's really just like a washer and dryer space with a toilet and a sink, and there's a curtain as a door. Mm-hmm. And I'm behind this curtain, and, like, at this point, like, I'm pretty sure I'm naked for some reason. I'm not really sure why. Why not? Um, yeah, I, I don't yeah. really get what happened there. Yeah. And... Uh, I've got like this tinfoil, these drugs, and I'm trying to like split this up so I can give him drugs. And um, I spill some drugs in the sink and I'm super pissed. And my sister pulls the curtain and sees me with like a syringe, this like super sketchy, like very conspicuous, like tinfoil and heroin get up I got going on. Like just classic imagery of like these people are not doing the right thing. Yeah. And this uh, is the sister that also used drugs, right? Yeah, but she wasn't an IV drug user. Oh, okay. Like, she had, I'd say at that point in time, her drug use really looked like, other than her use of marijuana, it was really, like, kind of like, she'd binge on hard drugs, and then be like, oh, they're fucking okay. my life. And then, got it. Um, it wasn't until, really, that uh, Brock died that she really got really bad. Okay. Um, All right, sorry, I didn't mean to... No, you're fine, you're fine. So it's, it's confusing, because you've heard me talk about my, you know, being in relation to you her think and it, what it's like today. Yeah. And at the time, really, like... She's just kind of a lazy hippie that every once in a while would go get spun out super bad for like yeah. four or five months and then stop. Go on a run, as they call it. Yeah. yeah. So she sees me doing all this stuff, and she just freaks the fuck out. And she didn't know you were doing that at the time? No. She thought your friend was, obviously, because he was the one that was not doing well. She she had her suspicions, but really I think most people were, at that time were concerned about my drinking behavior. Because Got it, because that would, was so constant. Well, yeah, I just drink all the time and abuse benzodiazepines and blackout. This is super embarrassing. There was one time I was I was seeing this girl and I was living in her basement because that was my mo. Like I'm gonna date you and live in your basement. Yeah. And uh, we'd go over to my sister's house and hang out. 
and uh, we'd smoke pot. And uh, I guess I just like took one too many that day because I went over there and I didn't remember this, but I like tried to kiss my sister because I thought she was my girlfriend. Oh, man. <laughs> and, then, and then nobody told me for like six months that that happened. Oh. Like nobody told me. It was too embarrassing. It was super weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, Benzos uh, and drinking is such a bad combination. Yeah, you. I mean, there's a recipe for just forgetting a lot of, a lot of time. From yeah. what I've gathered, I I've, I never really messed with it, thank God. But I've been heard some stories of people that have been told stories about themselves, and I'm like, oh man. Yeah, and that's how a lot of the like end of my active uh, drug addiction was like. Is like I I heard stories. You're like this is what you did. I don't remember doing that at all. Yeah, a lot of like inappropriate peeing and kissing, and um, I tried to like argue with this one lady's probation officer. Whoa. Um, yeah, just like really. Uh, the, my one friend said that when you take those pills, you turn into a ruthless gangster. And, like, I'm, like, this, like, boring guy. Like, I play computer games. Yeah. Like, I'm, like, afraid of the dark. Yeah. And like, you turn into this guy yeah, just arguing not, with the probation officer. Yeah. I, I, it doesn't make a That's lot of sense. That's not even yours? Right? Yeah, no. And, like, I had no business being at her house doing drugs. She was on probation. Ugh, but, yeah. That, that didn't matter at that time. So, anyway, like, my sister sees me with all these drugs, and she naturally freaks out, right? Yeah. Like, I'm... I'm doing what most people consider to be like the most dangerous drug on the planet. Like it's, we know today that a drug overdose, is like the number one way for a guy our age to die. I mean, it kills more young men than anything else at this point in time, more than suicide, more than smoking, more than drinking and driving, all that. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's far and above all the other things that kill young people right now is like IV um, opioid usage. And, uh, she just freaks the fuck out, dude. Yeah. She calls, she calls my dad. Um, and I, I lied to my dad about what was going on. I told him, you know, I just, I smoke a little bit of pot. I, maybe I drink too much, but I, she's actually high on meth and that's why she's. Oh, so you turned it on her? Yeah. I tried to, I tried to turn it around and, um, I had been working third shift at a gas station at this point in time. And this is how pathetic my life was. It was the highest paying job I had ever had. I was making $10 an hour. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and I'm working third shift at this gas station and I'm just besides my, beside myself. Like I can't, I literally can't cope with the fact that my friend died mm-hmm. um, without putting a needle in my arm. Then your other friend, whatever he was just, whatever happened with him. I'll, I'll get to that. Get to I guess that. I need okay. to, I need to provide this, this little bit of information, right? No, you're good. Um, I'm uh, the last like three weeks after this guy dies, mm-hmm. I go to work every night um, that I'm scheduled, right? I worked like Monday through Friday or something. Who knows? I definitely, no, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. and I just, I'm sitting there and I can't take enough drugs to make myself feel okay. And every time somebody's not in the gas station, I just uncontrollably sob because of how hopeless and painful my life is. Mm-hmm. And just like how absolutely, um, just devastating it was that this guy died. He died really young. He was 23 years old. Um, and, um, you know, like a week before he died, he sat with me in his garage and talked to him about how he couldn't stop what he was doing. And like the best I could come up with was let's just do Kratom instead. Yeah. Like I just, replacement. it was just so, it was so devastating. So I, I back to the present moment there where I'm in, in the bathroom 
and I, I talk to my dad on the phone and I lie and mm-hmm. whatever. I was able to get out of that situation and I go to work that night. Um, cause homeboy wants to go to treatment, but for some reason, drug and alcohol treatment is a giant nightmare to get into most of the time, especially with like public health stuff. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm at work and I'm just having this moment where I'm sitting there and the message in my head is this can all stop right now. You mm-hmm. just have to tell the truth. Yeah. And I, I've got this, this just like moment of truth where I realize that I'm never going to be happy if I keep living this way. I'm never ever going to be comfortable. I'm never going to be able to have any kind of relationships or have any kind of success uh, whether it be financially, my health, uh, relationships, like any of that stuff. I just knew, like, I was a fucking loser, and I was going to stay a loser. And either I was going to kill myself intentionally or unintentionally with drugs, or I was just going to live, if you can even call it living, that way for the rest of my life, my dad's basement. And um, I tell you, man, I lit a fire under my ass. Like, I, I picked up the phone, and I just called my dad, and I told him the truth about everything. I told him what I was doing, how I was doing it. Um, the next day, I called my grandmother because I, I was really, cl- I'm really close to my grandmother, and I told her the truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I just got really honest with everybody. Um, and me and that guy went to treatment together. Um, we went to a hospital-based treatment center, mm-hmm. and uh, the, it gets a lot of flack because it really sucks in comparison to some of the rehabs that you can go to. But uh, my experience there saved my life. Um, that guy did not stay. He's still using drugs. He didn't stay the whole time. He left treatment. Yeah, no, he got in like seven or eight days and he came up with this thing about how like he thought he had a court date or something. And I mean, just off the races, I've seen him in and out on again, off again since I got clean, but, um, he hasn't had any success. I mean, he just, I can't imagine the level of pain he experiences on a daily basis with the experiences he had when he was a child. Yeah. I mean, I just can't even imagine facing that stuff. Um, so I have a lot of, a lot of empathy for that guy and I think about him quite a bit. Um, but I did not stay clean the first time I went to treatment. Um, I went in and I got like a, did the whole program though. Yeah. I went in and I did, it was a recommended 21 to 28 days. And they, when I did my, um, last week's evaluation, I mean, they were just like, I was the guy that if there was like the drug and alcohol treatment yearbook, I was most likely to succeed. Like I did all the assignments they gave me. I took all the opportunities. Yeah. I read like seven books. Um, I, I did all the things like, and I even did stuff that I was vehemently against. Like they had a, like a Judeo Christian support group on Friday nights and they told me I should go to that. And I did that. Um, I got on my knees and I said this like really weird Jesus-y prayer. Um, and I mean, I'm an agnostic atheist, Yeah. Um, but I was, but you I was, were just like, I'm doing whatever. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If, if you told me to go in the corner, do a handstand and take a shit, I double check and make sure it was the right corner. I mean, I was just willing yeah. to do whatever, whatever. The problem is once I got out, um, and I did outpatient, I really had this misunderstanding about what addiction really was. Um, I really thought well, you know, this is the first time in my life I've had any, you know, positive emotion that lasts longer than four and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm good now. And I made a bunch of terrible choices to where I ended up living with a girl, um, being in a really unhealthy relationship dynamic. She was on drugs. 
And uh, the abandonment stuff crept back in, man. And what? Uh, shoot, we were in this really weird open relationship um, that I didn't really want to be in, but I didn't want to be alone. Got it. I've got You're compromised. Yeah, I've got all this like, um, like process sex addiction stuff going on that is like shrouding the pain of my fear of abandonment and intimacy. And the conclusion I reached is, if I do drugs with her, she won't need the guy that she gets to do drugs with. Ah. Uh. And um, it wasn't like this obsessive thing where like I was like fiending and I needed a hit or I need to get loaded. It's just like it was so it's sneaky. An acceptance thing. Yeah, it was so sneaky because it made perfect sense to me. I was like, I don't even really like weed, so I can do it. Oh. Um, which makes a lot of sense, right? I hate doing this, so I should do it. Um, yeah. But at the time, it made perfect sense. I wasn't involved in any support groups. You justified groups. it. You made it. Yeah, I wasn't involved in any support groups. I got this. It's going to be all right. I feel good. I got yeah. the job, the girl in the car. Yeah, the, you're... The Holy Trinity of recovery. Yeah. And, um, you know, I used, I used drugs again, and I really... I got in this place where... Um, it was before, right? I'm 14 and it's, I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to use drugs. At this point it was, I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to get off drugs. Mm -hmm. And that's really where I started to get like real freedom is when I was in this place where I didn't want to die anymore. I didn't want to feel the way that I felt anymore. And, um, I was really willing to do whatever actually this time to shut the fuck up. And listen to what people had to say about how I should be living my life. I really had this huge mis misconception. And I didn't understand that, like, addiction really requires, like, what I would call, like, a continuum of care. Maintenance. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, I needed the inpatient rehab to get some clarity and some information. I needed the outpatient rehab to get connected to the local support group community and um, have some accountability through drug testing. And then from there, like, what I didn't understand is that I absolutely needed to get involved in some kind of peer support group. Yeah. And um, I just was not willing to do that the first time. Especially, the you know, the, the ones that we get um, exposed to around here, we don't really have any secular support groups. They're, they're about God. And that was something that I was really uh, unwilling yeah. to engage in in any serious way. Um, but I, I, was just, I was just done. I was just, just so done, dude. I didn't care. I didn't care what it, yeah, what it, what it took or any of that. I just I went in, you know, and did that. You got to have that, like, always. It's a cliche, but like the the willingness. You don't have the willingness to want to stay or want to actually get clean and stay clean, then you're not going to. It's that simple. Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't even so much that I wanted the, the first time I wanted to use drugs. I was really actually like against it. It was super grateful that I wasn't on drugs. Yeah. I remember <laughs> this is so funny. But you didn't have like the tools or the support. Yeah. So you're just like, well, I'm going back to it. This is. Yeah, I tricked myself into it. Yeah. You... In a way that really didn't present any kind of real danger in my head whatsoever. Where if you were in a sport group, you could call somebody like, hey, you're being an idiot, man. You should yeah, they, they would have been like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, like, like uh, not a good call, man. If somebody called me with that information today, I would be like, we need to, we're meeting up right now. Yeah. Like, I'll pay for the moving truck. Like, you, you just... You get out of there. Yeah, this is... I mean, if you want to die that bad, I'll buy the gun for you. Like, it's just completely outrageous to me in hindsight. But yeah. At the time, it just made perfect sense. It made perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. You made it make sense in your head. Yeah. And it's not like I've gotten any smarter, you know, <laughs> since then. I just, like, 
I don't know if that's necessarily true. Maybe I have, but I'm the, the, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I cannot do this without outside influence. Like I need other people to keep this process going. And, um, you know, I'm, I really like what I've discovered in recovery is that all the stuff that I desperately needed being that little neglected kid and that guy that had to use drugs to feel okay and feel accepted, like recovery has offered an opportunity to have all that stuff. Um, like I have a community of people that I can depend upon, call any hour of the day and get a hold of at least somebody and talk about what's going on. Um, yeah, that network's very crucial. Yeah, and I I feel like I belong somewhere. I mean, really, like my whole life, I never really felt like if I was authentic, I could be a part of anything. And um, I mean, for the most part, it was really true. Um, I mean, I like I went to Catholic school and I didn't believe in God. It was weird, you know. Like, and then like never, you never bought into it. No, not once. Not once. I I just the way I saw it when I was little. Right, I've got a different view today. But when I was little, is if God's real, why is my life like this? Oh, okay. So I wasn't I wasn't even willing to listen to any of it because I had all these people around me who came from um, wealth and they you know they had really um, secure close married like families. Why is my life like this? Yeah, it's like does Jesus hate me? Yeah, like that's that's how I felt. And um, as, as an adult, like I I want to be respectful to anybody and everybody's beliefs. For myself, yeah, and I, I should have said bought in. in but yeah, 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 that's that's, that's, that's fine. fine. That's fine. They're not going to offend me. <laughs> but, no, that wasn't that. That was mainly for anybody listening. Like, yeah, yeah, you just, it just wasn't something you believed in. And, but you still were a part of that environment. Yeah. So, so it's, it's confusing. It's really alienating. That's, yeah. That's you feel like, uh, everybody believes this and I'm supposed to believe this, but I don't. Yeah. And that's a, that's a big, I think a big, like, uh, tray of people with substance use disorders is feeling like really alienated from yeah. people and not being able to connect to people and not feeling a part of things. Um, and we all have different reasons for feeling that way. Oh yeah. That's why I did what I did was to feel accepted and, you know, be able to hang out with people, uh, that I normally probably wouldn't have been able to hang out with. So I thought unless I, did what they were doing help me fit in uh otherwise i felt like i didn't have a home i was like even in high school i was i was definitely i wasn't like a an outcast by any means i was definitely friends with like everybody i well surface level friends with a lot of people but i didn't have anyone that i was really super close to um that i was able to like truly be myself i didn't know who i was ever yeah i just felt like i was just like uh i don't and i just had a lot going on in my brain i was just like i want to not only fit in but i want to be able to like you were saying you tried a bunch of different drugs you did research you're like yeah trying to find that that recipe and never happened like how do i fix myself how do i make myself feel like normal quotes uh because i don't even know what normal is anymore but yeah i don't i don't think it's real it's relative i, I, I actually yeah. think that it's really um like a toxic uh con conception and i mean yeah. 
Not even just in like a social justice way, but I really think that it's a myth that we've created as a society to further judge ourselves and alienate ourselves. It's another way to to separate who we are. Like we're all individuals. We're all different. So your normal is not my normal if we use that term. Yeah, it's just it's a completely meaningless term that is it's just completely subjective and has as far as I'm concerned no value at all when it comes to people anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Like my washing machine, I want it to use a normal setting. Yeah. Yeah. But exactly. I know most of the other settings do. It's fucking <laughs> The, the the dryers, the dryer and the washer in my basement that we have, my wife actually got them from when we bought our house, we got them from the school she was working at and they have circles around the settings for what is supposed to be used so i just follow the circles oh hey yeah i don't, nice. I don't you get a cheat sheet yeah i don't need to know yeah i know it even has like a it well it used to we took it off it had a laminate that said please clean the lunch trap so i mean i wasn't gonna screw it up it's an extra reminder yeah very useful yeah so let's talk about like being in recovery and being functioning members of society and how interesting that is coming from where we were at like yeah i lived in my parents basement i was doing that i was a basement guy for a while and now i have my own home we both have our own homes yeah and uh we have responsibilities and bills and jobs and i was like wait did that go out again yeah (laughs) we had an issue earlier we had to start over so i was like oh no (laughs) uh but it's just I look at it now and I'm like, it's sometimes I just like laugh. I'm just like, this is really like my life now. Like I did not expect this to be where I was at right now. Um, and I don't know. It's just kind of a, it's crazy 180. And like, and then you see people like that are still struggling and like still stuck in that situation that we were stuck in different, we're all different situations, but still stuck and their addiction, and you're just like, man, I hope they figure it out soon because we both know, like we talked about earlier, yeah. we can't save them. We can't be like, hey, you need to you need to do this, you need to do that, because um, if they're not ready, they're not ready. It's just what it boils down to, and it's it sucks. But being where we're at now, like, do you ever just like look back, like look at your life, and you're like, what? How did this, you know, kind of how it happened, but you still like, so there's times where I'll be driving in my car and I'll be listening to music after like hanging out with people from the support group. Yeah. After having a like really, really good day where like, um, you know, I accomplished something Yeah. I'm like working on a long-term goal that I have and I'll, I'll literally just start to cry because I can't, I can't even begin to express how much gratitude I have for my life. I mean, I spent the majority of my life wishing I was someone else, somewhere else, doing something else. And Mm -hmm. when those weren't options, I wanted to die. And I don't have any of that going on anymore. Yeah. At all. Not even, not even close. Like there's, I I remember when I got, when I first got clean, um, my, my buddy Ricky jokes about this all the time. And he, and he says, and he says, if I would have sat down when I first got clean, um, and made a list of everything, like my expectations and demands, I would have shortchanged myself. And I, I earnestly believe that. When I first oh, got yeah. clean, um, I had an iPhone 4 in, oh, a, yeah. in 2017. 
uh, with a pink bedazzled case. No one had your charger. Yeah, no, not even me. <laughs> no one let um, you borrow your charger. I was living in my friend's guest bedroom. Um, I was too emotionally dysregulated to hold a job successfully. Um, and I, I just like could not function in society whatsoever. And the and list was probably really short. Like, uh, I just won't have a job in my own place. I don't want to have a job, but oh, you, you don't have a job. Okay, you had to, you had to. So it was a little shorter. I wanted to be able to have a job. Okay, so you, yeah. My expectations were: I want a nice phone. I want one or two pretty girlfriends, and I want a better car. One or two. And uh, like, I just really want to be able to explore my life. And I mean, obviously, like as I. I'll use the term like emotionally matured through the recovery process. I started to have some more realistic and reasonable goals, but I would have never expected the place that I'm in right now at all. I mean, if you would have told me even like two and a half years ago that I'd be in the spot I'm in, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't believe I just, I would have had a really difficult time thinking that one, this would be what I wanted or two, that this would be where I'm at. Um, you know, like I never wanted to get married. The the mm -hmm. the pain of my parents' divorce was so significant that I had really convinced myself that that's not who I was. That's mm -hmm. not who I wanted to be. Um, I would have never bought a home. Uh, uh, growing up with the financial insecurity that we grew up with, I was really against the idea of trusting banks, oh, yeah. like getting a mortgage or any of that. Like I completely abandoned the idea of ever working on my credit. Um, just all that stuff. I just, I really don't think any of that was for me at all. <laughs> yeah. And also one thing I've noticed is like the more I work on myself and the longer I stay clean, the more I don't idolize like other people's lives or like try to like be like, Oh, I wish I was like that. Or I wish I was more like them. And like in a weird way anyway, like, yeah. like I used to like compare myself so much more than I do now. I don't yeah. really like, I'm just like, I'm just trying to be a better version of me. I don't really care that much about like where other people are at and like we're all on different levels and it's like, this is where I'm at as a almost 33 year old man. Like, and, uh, I do sell myself short a lot, like where I'm like, oh, I should be here and things like that. But it's not in necessarily in comparison to others all the time. It's mostly just because I set I set such high expectations for myself. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've struggled with that quite a bit, like the unrealistic expectations and It's like why can't you just be happy for what you have? Like Yeah, and that's that's uh that's really what I'm working on right now is um, like, be grateful like what we were talking about. Like yeah that you have the things you have and where you're at, like that should be good enough for now. Like as long as you're not complacent, complacency, like that's another cliche that you hear all the time is like kind of a silent indicator of like potential relapse. Yeah. And we've seen it happen with people. And uh, that's another thing you notice the longer like you stay around and go to meetings, you're like, you learn what not to do. Yeah, I'd, well. I'd say the most valuable information I've gotten from the support group hasn't been so much what to do. It's just like really good examples of not how to be and not mm. what to do. And, you know, the support group that we participate in has a pretty clear framework of like how to recover and how to conduct yourself. Like there's guidelines, they call them principles. Mm -hmm. Um but like that stuff's really valuable 
And, you know, that I find that that, I guess I would call it like a moral philosophy of how to conduct my life is really essential for a lot of the things I'm trying to do and has really enriched my life. But just watching people fuck up and really paying attention and really being curious about what happened and not being judgmental, but really just like trying to be supportive and really gain the information, like being vigilant in this process and learning about like what the pitfalls are. I think you're going to get way more out of that than anything else. Oh yeah. Yeah. The awareness that I have of just like other people's actions and my own actions is like never been this high. Yeah. It's, it's weird sometimes. It's like, I see things that are going to happen before they happen sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely, I can relate to that a lot with myself and other people. Like with myself, luckily I could be like, Oh, I can stop this. <laughs> like I don't see this going the right way or I need to take a step back and not make a, I used to make such like, I still do it sometimes, but not nearly as much, just like sporadic decisions on the spot. I wouldn't think about it, just do it. And the more I like take a step back and be like, oh, how is this going to affect this, this and that, the better things go. <laughs> like, instead of just like, oh, got to make this decision now, got to do it now and rush everything. That's when I screw up. Yeah, see, it's funny because I, um, I feel like I've actually gotten pretty good at making decisions. And um, like I've become incredibly decisive. But the, the experience I've had like the last two years with like my career and um, like trying to fit the square peg in the round hole and ultimately like leaving the, the field that I was working in um, has really given me like I think like honestly like a healthy amount of self-doubt. <laughs> like really just um, I can really. What you're capable of. Yeah. And um, that's something that I've been that I've been talking about in therapy is um, so I, I was. I really like a lot of my recovery. I've worked towards um, getting into um, electrical construction and working really hard and building experience and getting accepted into um, a union apprenticeship and really just like not succeeding in that arena in my life. Um, I've got a tremendous fear of heights. Um, I don't drink. Um, and I can just be like really awkward around people that aren't in recovery, or involved in recovery. And I just like really did not succeed in that environment at all. And uh, I had like this really rigid idea of what my life was going to look like. Because we're talking like a $90,000 a year career with like pension and health insurance you don't have to pay for. And like I was going to be taken care of. That looks good on paper. Yeah. And what what ended up happening is, is I just got so rigid and like that was what I was going to do. That um, I actually was like kind of um, I wasn't kind of I was like fucking up my marriage. Like I was coming home like I, and this is where like the CPTSD stuff comes in for this. That is really like kind of alerted me that hey, I have more work to do. Mm -hmm. Um, is I spent like eighteen months to two years working this job, and having these um, they call them emotional flashbacks where I'm like that little kid scared hiding in his bedroom again. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like 20 years later, you know, and I'm at work with a bunch of guys and, um, I just, it's not an environment that I'm really going to be successful in mm. at all. Um, 
I'm really sensitive and you know what? I worked really fucking hard to get this sensitive and I'm okay with that. Um, but it, it, you have actual emotions now. Yeah. I have empathy. Um, so my, my current job, um, I work at a drug and alcohol treatment center. Um, complete flip. Yeah. And my, my boss is somebody that I went to outpatient rehab with. He's a very close friend of mine. Um, I really feel secure in the idea, and I can't believe I'm saying this because I'm really like kind of like a psychotic labor rights guy and like really dist- distrusting of corporations and things. But like, I really feel like it's like a family. Like, I really feel emotionally connected with everybody there and supported. And uh, it's just like night and day. I was talking to my therapist yeah. about that, and he's, he's got to be. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I've never worked either, but it's got. Like, I know the people that work in treatment centers are for the most part, like in recovery and like us. So it's like, you're going to work and hanging out with like, just like you're kind of hanging out and working at the same time. It's weird. Yeah. And it's what's, what I really like about it is, and you're giving back, of course, the most painful parts of my life in in the recovery process have become the most valuable things that I have. And yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure you can speak to that too. Oh, like, yeah. All that stuff that happened to me, the the dark spot in my life that I had to keep hidden, even from myself for 10 years, is the most valuable asset I bring to the table in my life um, because I can connect with a guy who's new Mm -hmm. and give him some hope and some direction of what what to do about his problem. And just the idea that I can support myself and my family with that, um, I mean, it's just a no-brainer for me. Like, dude, I was broken too. Let's, yeah, then they can relate to you. Yeah. And having that, and you're, the, and you're that source of hope for them. Like, hey, you're not going to be like this forever if you, you know, continue on the right path, for lack of a better way to say it. But, so, what was the point where you're, well, I guess you kind of explained that. So you were kind of at a point with your with the career that you were in where you were just like, this is screwing up everything in my life that I've worked so hard for. Yeah, I got a performance review, and they basically, um, the guy at the company insinuated that I had a learning disability. Um, and what I, what I think is I could, I was very resentful about this. Yeah. Like for like a month after it, I'm like three months out of the situation. I, I quit working there in November. So we're like two, three months out. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've done some work on it and um, took, taken it through the process that we use in the support group. And my original story is, why are you guys doing this to me? Yeah. You guys are trying to, you're coming for my family and my future. And the story I have now to is. Get very personal. Yeah. The story I have now is it wasn't a good fit for me. It was incredibly triggering to me every day. Toxic to get yelled at, and also like I just I'm I'm so bad with heights. Like I, I get on yeah. top of like a ten foot ladder, and I just feel like I'm gonna die. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just like haven't been able to get past that, no matter how much exposure that I have or anything that I do with it. Um, yeah, you probably thought like, hey, once I do this a few times or do it multiple times, I'll get over it. But yeah, we're just, talking two years of trying, and it just, just never, it yeah. never broke for me. So it's like I just have to accept it and get past it. Yeah. You know. Um, so I can see now how it would look like I was fucked up, like I'm in this like fight or flight 
uh, like malaise, like this fog, and I can't get out of it every single day. So I just, um, I'm happy that I was angry at what he insinuated, and it really like hurt my ego a lot, like really bruised yeah, my ego. Of course, yeah. Because um, it hurt bad enough that I was willing to listen to. Um, I went to the guy who mentors me in the support group's house, and um, he was just like, "Fuck those guys." He's like, you don't have to work there. Mm -hmm. And it just, I mean, you know how it can be. You get so rigid. I got so rigid that I was like, I need to do this. I have to do this if I want to have the future I want to have with, like, my wife and have a child and uh, fancy how All this image bullshit. None of it's actually really valuable emotionally, right? It, but I created this image of who I was supposed to be. And I yeah. big chip on my shoulder growing up super poor and trying to impress my, my family and my grandparents. And um, I just realized that it's not worth the the amount of money is not worth the cost that was causing to be in my marriage. Cause I quit that job, dude. And literally night and day difference. Like, um, I'm not tense at home anymore. Uh, there's actual like emotional intimacy and like fun in my marriage again. Um, I don't wake up on days that I have to go to work and like, think how the fuck am I going to do this? Like, how am I going to pull it together and get through this? Um, I get to be like present in my life and actually do something I care about. Yeah, because you were just, like, checked out. Because you're just like, I kind of almost like you turned into, like, a robot when you're doing that. When you're doing yeah. something that you really just don't want to be doing. But you're like, and then eventually, kind of like kind of like recovery. The pain was, the, was strong enough where you're like, I got it. I got to do something different. Like, Well, yeah, I'm not a dummy, man. I've seen guys go back out and start using drugs again over career stuff. Oh, yeah. And, like, I'm not... Like, I just know the signs. Like, I, I have this agreement with myself that, like, if I'm in a situation that makes me consistently want to commit suicide or use drugs, like, it has to change. It's not negotiable. Yeah. Like, uh, I heard a guy say that it, that uh, he was, like, a Civil War surgeon. Like, he didn't have any time to be fucking around with stuff that was infected and everything. Like, in the Civil War, right, they just cut it off. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the that's the kind of mentality I have about stuff like that. If like if it presents that urgent of an emotional or physical danger in my life, it has to go. Yeah. Um, what's weird is I didn't really realize how much it was fucking me up. Like I had I had really just like committed so deeply to the idea. Like this is what I'm doing. This is this is it. Well, yeah, and I think I was actually like literally gaslighting myself. Like I was telling myself uh, like that I. I was, um, it wasn't that bad. Uh, it was my mental health. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get through this and it's going to change. And was, there was a lot of judgment about what I was doing with my recovery program and how I was like completely mysteriously unable to apply it to my job. So I, I just like accepted something I really should have changed a long time ago. Mm. And, um, I didn't realize just like how, um, detrimental it was until I quit working there. So you tricked yourself in believing that this was the right thing to do. Also, that it sounds like some ego stuff too. Like you don't. Want oh to, yeah. Yeah. Like I've worked my ass off to get to this position, and I'm just gonna quit. Like that. Yeah, but it's the obviously it was the right decision. Like. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Where I'm working now, I mean. I'm probably not, never, even with uh, what I'm doing with my education right now, never going to have the earning potential that I had before or the benefits or any of that. And 
I just couldn't care any less. Like we were talking about that acceptance, like where I'm at is good enough. And like, I've got savings. I'm not living paycheck to paycheck. Um, I have a house and a car I can afford. Um, like none of that stuff really bothers me. I mean, we just went out on a whim and bought the new Xbox the other day and oh, probably, yeah. probably not a good choice, but I mean, we're using it. <laughs> um, so I'm not really too worried about anything. I can still kind of tell myself that story sometimes though. Like, well, you really, you know, I, on the way over here, I was thinking about that. I was like, am I really like, I kind of doubt myself. And I, I kind of do that before I talk about myself. And I'm just like, man, am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And I just like started laughing and I was like, I'm, I really probably shouldn't entertain any of this. No. Like just that like metacognition, like none of this is actually useful. No. Adam and I switched gears here a little bit and talked about healthcare in the United States and specifically mental health care for a little bit and wrapped up the episode. So if you like this episode, definitely share it with a friend. Drop a review if you're listening on Apple or Spotify. That helps out a lot. And tune in next week. New episode every Monday of the Modern Day Overthinker podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I really appreciate it. I mean, I can't imagine anything more infuriating to me than the insurance companies. <laughs> uh, the insurance companies and the providers. Uh, so there's certain like providers that are getting to the point where they will not see you unless you can prove your insurance is active or you can give us 200 bucks or like sometimes more to be seen they won't just straight up bill you they will want some type of money up front because these providers have been burned and by by people or by insurance companies so many times that they're just like we're not messing around anymore Healthcare has gotten so bad in this country. It is I and I see it firsthand every single day. Before I worked in healthcare or worked in with insurance, I didn't know there was a problem. I I heard yeah. you know older people talk about it all the time. Like you, you know, just thought they're bored though. Yeah, right? they just thought they're just old people complaining about stuff. You know, uh, but no, they're right, and it's so screwed up. Um, and that's the other thing uh, with with my job is like. I can't fix this myself. It's an uphill battle uh, that I'm dealing with here. Um, and that gets frustrating because you're like, this isn't going to change. Like, this, there's going to have to be a huge change, like, from, like, the government or just within the insurance company. I mean, I have a lot of, lot of opinions on that. Oh, it's so yeah. messed up, man. Uh, but... I mean, it's like, what is the right fix at this point? Because it's so screwed up. It's just like, I don't know what, what to do about it. But working in the industry has been um, eye-opening on that because I, I it's changed some of, like, my views even politically. Like, um, And now I'm at the point where I'm just like, uh, I don't know who to believe anymore. This is all messed up. Like, what? It's all about money, man. It's just yeah. It's that's that's honestly like my biggest my biggest complaint about just like health in this country in general is that I really don't, don't think, think that, that it's morally acceptable to monetize people's well being. No, 
I really like, I I'm really grateful about the organization that I work for. Cause obviously like we want to charge for our services. Yeah. Like we need to make money to be a business. People have to get paid and but know, there's overhead. We are absolutely willing to work with people in any way possible. Cause we recognize it for what is life or death with drugs and alcohol, yeah. you know, but this could be it. But not every organization's like that. Not every organization is going to work with you. Um, and I mean, the mental health care system in this country is absolutely like overburdened, overwhelmed. There's not enough providers and it's unless you have like a good job and resources, like you're not going to be able to become a part of it in any meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Like the, when I, when I first got clean, I was on Medicaid and first of all, it took me 90 days to even have an assessment to see a psychiatrist, which is, I mean, the, the symptoms that I was presenting with like suicidal ideation, yeah. like, uh, mania, depressive episodes, things like that. I mean, I was just like, I could have had a bad day and yeah, potentially been committed it. suicide and never got a chance to ever see anybody and work on that. Um, and then the quality of services that I had access to were not very good because those community health resources, um, they're not getting paid a reasonable amount of money. Medicaid does not reimburse a lot of money to providers for the services that are uh, rendered. So you end up with basically people who just have gotten out of college that don't have a lot of experience. And most people can do good work, but their caseloads are still their yeah. caseloads are outrageous. Yeah. Like I've I've read about people that work in community mental health, they're therapists, they do talk therapy, and they're seeing like forty or fifty people a week. I mean, that's just so like you have your hour that you spend with the client. And then you also have all the time you need to do to, one, take care of yourself, two, um, keep notes of what's going on, uh, do billing with insurance companies that don't want to pay, um, or Medicaid even can be difficult for a lot of people. And you just have like all this insanity, like where it just doesn't make any sense. So I don't see that getting better anytime soon. Um, and then once you get to a certain point, like let's say you are able somehow to get to a higher socioeconomic status, you then you just can't afford insurance for a while. And then when you finally get to a place where you can afford it, it's still, I mean, just ludicrously expensive. Expensive. The wait to get in to see somebody. That's the, the only, I mean, there's a few silver linings with the whole pandemic mostly it's bad but there's some silver linings and one is virtual health yeah and being able to have access to a therapist that could be in a different state they're just licensed in your state is huge like because otherwise if you wanted to see a therapist it was more than likely in person and you're gonna have to wait like you were saying, like the 90 days or maybe even six months. It's just like by that time, I'm going to be even worse. Yeah. I'm going to need more sessions. And But it's because people are – these specialists are spread so thin. Yeah, That's why I even thought like you know about going back to school, but I have this weird relationship with school. So I'm like trying to work on that <laughs> personally um, because I really, you know – 
would like to help and like to be a part of that and uh, part of the solution there. But I'm still just one guy. So it's yeah. also like, uh, well, I get that complex where I'm like, that's never going to be enough. I'm never going to be able to do enough. And I don't want to get in that situation either. So it's, I think there's a balanced perspective. Yeah. Like this is not going to change unless we have dramatic, um, unfortunately, dramatic political attention to these issues. And I mean, we don't even need to talk about politics for us to recognize that there's so much bread and circus going on right now that mm-hmm. I mean, there you don't even really need a platform or ideas to run. You just need a big mouth and to argue. Yeah, it's scary. Um, so I don't think that we're going to see any kind of serious change in the way that the government approaches like regulating healthcare, um, insurance companies, anything like that. And I really think the only way we're going to see any difference is if policy changes around insurance and healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's like give up on it though, you know, no. just be hopeless. Like I really think that though, here, here's the way I see it, right? Is so I, I go to work and I try to have a relationship with every single client that we have in our facility. And that's not always possible, but my hope is that I can impact in the 30, 60, 90 days that I get to interact with this person I can impact at least one person. Yeah. And at the end of the day, um, you know, on my my journey in recovery, it wasn't until I met the one person who ultimately became the person that mentored me in the support group that anything happened for me. So if if I can get the opportunity to be that guy for one person, then it was all worth it for me. That's true, yeah. But it's just not... It's it's unfortunate. I mean, we've got like statistics for people in in recovery that their success rates are just absolutely abysmal. I mean, yeah. I think it's like eleven percent of people um, achieve like a year of sobriety, um, and then once you get up to like five, ten years, I mean, it's like exponentially worse statistically. Like, it's very unlikely that people get better from this. Oh yeah, when I hit my five years, because I'm just over five years, I'm just like oh. Yeah, you're in, like, no man's land. <laughs> yeah, like, stats are not my favor. Yeah. But also, I look at that as, like, you know what? I am going to not be a statistic, and, you know, it's kind of like a, it's more of a challenge and more of an F you, like, I'm going to do it anyway, like... Yeah, and that, that's the way I look at it is, like, if we want this stuff to be different, we have to affect change upon it. We have to step out as examples, and we need to It's not just action. about It's not just about me anymore. I'm yeah. to the point where, uh, which is good, where I am responsible for helping other people stay clean as well, not just me. Like, And I'm glad it's set up that way because there's times where I'm just like, you know what, what am I doing here? Why is this even worth it? Or I get lonely or whatever. I'm going to go to the bar and drink or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, oh, yeah. I have people that look up to me and uh, I'm a part of their support system. And I'm not just, like, letting me down. I'm letting other people down. It's like, I did enough of that in the past. I'm good. Yeah, I'm not not trying to have that real good feeling of moving back into the basement anytime soon. No, no. Yeah. I remember though. I have to remember like why I got and 
why I decided to get into recovery and why I decided to get clean. If, when I, if I ever forget about that, I am in a bad place. We got here. Okay. Yeah, we okay. can wrap up. Um, but yeah, I could have talked about insurance companies for a while. Um, yeah, and, I don't, providers, I don't want to go too far on no, that. No, no, we don't really politicize your episode and I really, no, no. And also like, avoid that. <laughs> well, the touching on the mental health access to care is important. Uh, and it is a problem, but also like use your resources. Uh, if you're somebody that wants to get help or wants to get therapy, Try to, you know, talk to other people who are in therapy, talk to you if you're working at a company uh, that's big enough that has, you know, employee assistance program or like, you know, you have any type of benefits. Talk to your HR, see what you can do. Companies are getting more progressive about it. I've noticed that. And there are providers out there who are willing to work with people. Exactly. You got to ask. On paper, the... The price I was quoted when I first tried to get into therapy um, or come back to therapy in the last like year, it was completely unaffordable. My house was cheaper. Yeah. My mortgage was cheaper than what was being asked of me with what my insurance provided. But just like, I guess for anybody that's listening, just don't be afraid to say, hey, I'm self-pay. Can we work something out? Because Yeah, don't be afraid to ask. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of the people that work in the field are you know, like me and like you, they they want to help. Yeah, they have experience of the problem or of the dysfunction, and they they want to provide solutions. And they're a lot of them are willing to be flexible. Yeah, they really are. I mean, that's the, that's the situation I'm in right now. Like the guy was very generous and is willing to compromise because he believes in what he does. Yeah, which is awesome. Yeah. So there are people out there that want to help and that aren't driven by money. Yep. So. More people like that, the better. So I'm thinking we're starting to realize, like you realize with you know with your with your career, you're like I doesn't matter how much money or the benefits. It's not gonna, you know, it's ruining my my yeah. mental health and my life in general. Like it's not worth it. Not not even close. Yeah. No. Yeah. So. I'm so desperately happy to be out of that situation. <laughs> yeah. I just like, I can't even begin to, just to, like, to explain. Oh. Yeah. It's like, I, I just didn't realize just how much it was absolutely fucking me up. And then, yeah, it just, it's night and day. It's, uh, it's pretty good. That, that's one thing I want to say that my favorite thing is when like someone will come to the support group and they want to quit their job. That's like, as far as I'm concerned, the oh, yeah, most, you've been on this the lately, most yeah. therapeutic intervention you can have in your recovery is just quit your fucking job. If it's <laughs> if, it, if it makes sense, yeah. I, uh, like we we have parties when people like celebrate X amount of years, or when people like get through the the process that's recommended in the support group. Mm-hmm. I think we should have parties when people quit their job. My uh, my wife actually just um, accepted a new job opportunity. She didn't really feel. Um, fulfilled or um, appreciated in the role that she was in and she went out and she found something else and I'm like we absolutely need to celebrate this yeah like it's it's a it's a it's a big deal it's really a lot of people can end up feeling really trapped and rigid in those, those kind of situations yeah don't let your job hold you back 
your career holds you back from being happy like what's the point then but i i do recognize that there's like a certain amount of privilege that i have with the uh, you opportunities to... that i have and um you know having you know my wife's educated she's from a good socioeconomic background like a, a well-supported one like I I am really grateful that I have access to the resources that I have, and not everybody has that. But if you can leave a toxic work environment, if you have the means to do so, and the only thing holding you back is the what if, quit that fucking job. Yeah. <laughs> Just quit it. Just quit. Just quit it. Especially if you have another opportunity that – that was also something that you had. You had another opportunity that you were able to – Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's I, that's helpful as well, because obviously you don't want to lose your. It wasn't guaranteed. Like it's not like I had oh, this guy in the it back. Yeah, that's true. I uh, you still had risk. A huge risk. So I didn't. I guess I should, don't quit your job until you have a new one. <laughs> but yeah. I, not everybody listening don't necessarily quit your job. Yeah, they yeah. might go. They might listen and then just quit the next day. And yeah, then it's like wow, I listened to Colin's podcast and he's an asshole. He told me to quit my job. But, uh, no, I, um, you know, I don't have any like supernatural, um, spiritual beliefs, but I, there was a fun coincidence that I recognized when I went and I talked to my friend about this and, um, you know, he helped me get in a place where I was willing to, to change it. I, I looked up job opportunities that day. I'm sitting in that room and getting open to what he's saying, and it's literally the position that I had working at this facility two and a half years ago. And I was just like, yeah, I should probably get in touch with those people and yeah. get back to work. And So I, I feel pretty fortunate that that happened. And you were able to do that. Well, one of the reasons you were able to do this is you didn't burn the bridge. Yeah. Which is also good. I'm not using drugs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's 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 pretty great. That's yeah. pretty great. Well, I appreciate you coming by today and spending your afternoon talking about some important stuff.